So we are starting the book of Esther. This is lesson 10 of our winter quarter, 2023 now. Uh, the title of the lesson is Esther Becomes Queen of Persia. And the scriptures are Esther 1 and 2. And so, Lord, we thank you. The book of Esther is a book of your promises when we are not faithful. And uh, that you, it doesn't matter to you if we're faithful or not. If you have made us a promise, you will carry it out, irrespective of our faithfulness. And so it, the, this is a great book to batten down the security that we have through our promise in you. So we pray that you'd give us understanding as we look at this uh, book and that it would uh, give us assurance to, to walk with you and know that we are safe. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the first uh, section is the king gives a great banquet, and that is Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. So anybody want to? Thank you, ma'am. Yes, it was very opulent. Um, so just a few things about Esther. Esther, the author is unknown. The time of Esther occurs between the last verse of Ezra chapter 6 and the first verse of Ezra chapter 7. There's a gap of about 58 years. Uh, in between those two chapters of Ezra, and that is the time that Esther occurs. Verse 1, now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. So where does that place us? This is from the quarterly Darius, who was the one before Ahasuerus had organized the Persian Empire into 20 satrapies or governing regions. The satrapies contained Xerxes. Xerxes is the Greek name for Ahasuerus. So it's the same guy. Contained Xerxes, 127 provinces stretching from the Indus River, where gold was panned in northwest India to the land of Kush, along the upper Nile River, modern Sudan. So it was a big... Uh, Persia was the world power at that time. So remember the Persian kings running through this time were Cyrus was the first, Cambyses was the second, Darius was the third, then Ahasuerus, who we're dealing with here, and then Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was who was the king during Nehemiah's time, which we just finished. So he was later in time. So, um, you know, the book of Ezra is the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy of Cyrus, who Isaiah spoke 150 years before Cyrus's birth, that Cyrus would release the Jews from Babylon. Nehemiah was the fulfillment of the first seven weeks of Daniel's prophecy, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And... Um, so starting in 444 B.C., which is when Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem and running into the intertestamental period. That's that first seven weeks. 
And now what Esther is, is not a fulfillment of prophecy, really, but Esther is the demonstration of a promise. Can anybody, you know what that promise is? It was a promise given to the progenitor of the Hebrew nation, Abraham. There was a promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. And he made Abraham a whole bunch of promises. One of the promises was Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So one thing you should notice as we read through Esther is there is no interaction between the creator and his people here. None. There is no interaction. There is no prayer. There is no worship. There is no speaking of God at all. There is no prayer. There is fasting. There is fasting. So this, you know, I think, well, I'll, I'll get there later, but God keeps his promises even when people are not faithful. See, Cyrus said any Jew who wants to go back can go back. And some did go back. Those were the ones who wanted a relationship with God. The rest were comfortable. The world is comfortable. The world can make us comfortable and can lull us into a sense of security. You don't need God. Yeah. So verse 2 in those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which is at the citadel in Susa. So again from the quarterly, it says the Persian Empire maintained capitals in Babylon, Ecbatana, Persepolis, and Susa. Susa was the ancient capital of Elam. Daniel had had a prophetic dream in Susa. Okay, so Daniel was in Susa, and also Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah was in Susa, so it's east of Babylon. And that's where this uh, takes place. So then verses 3 through 5, um, in the third year of his reign, that was Ahasuerus in 483 B.C., he gave a banquet for all his princes in attendance, the army officers, Persia and Media, the nobles, and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. He displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. So that's a half of a Jewish year. So he turned the palace into like a museum, and people could come and say, oh, this is wonderful, you know, and all this stuff. There were hangings. Oh, when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. For all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Opulence. Wealth. Okay. It was during this time that he was probably planning his campaign against Greece. 
which was a disaster when he actually did it. This is also from the quarterly. That you know, there's a lot of uh, historical tidbits in here that are good. Yeah, well, it just says Xerxes and his military leaders probably planned their ill-fated invasion of Greece during this time. So, and then verse six, uh, there were hangings of fine white and violin. Oh, I already read that part. So, um. There were gold and silver benches scattered around the grounds that you could sit on, you know. Uh, it was just uh, incredible wealth. And then verses 7 and 8, drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. In uh, extra-biblical writings, Xerxes was known to have a lot of drinking parties. He was known for that says, verse 8, the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. You could have as much to drink as you wanted. It was an open bar. No restrictions. So, and then in verse 9, we see that a parallel banquet was given for women by Queen Vashti. So it was a week-long drinking party. And this is from the quarterly also. Esther's adventure is set against the backdrop of world power, unparalleled wealth, and conspicuous debauchery. Now, they say a statement here that I disagree with. So I'm going to read it to you and then tell you why I disagree. To enter such an arena then or now requires tremendous faith in God, whether that faith is expressed openly or held quietly in the heart. I disagree with that. What they said was to enter such an arena then or now requires tremendous faith in God, whether that faith is expressed openly or held quietly in the heart. We're told to separate from such things, aren't we? We are told to separate from such things. Um, we don't enter into debauchery with pagans. We talk to pagans. We're friends with pagans. We're good friends with pagans. We do not enter into debauchery with them. And what you will see is that Esther was drawn into this against her will. You know, what King Xerxes had going on here was basically his own private sex slavery trade. And she was drawn into this. This was not her choice. So, um, yeah. And he didn't ask. He did not ask. No. So, you know, um, if Mordecai and Esther had gone to Jerusalem and he was allowed, she wouldn't have been put through this. The Lord made it turn out good in the end. Yeah, the Lord made it turn out good in the end. But when it says that it requires faith to do this, I disagree. It requires faith to resist this. So, and, you know, this leads us to, because there's a direct parallel to us here. and Because, you know, the Jews, through Abraham, had a promise from God. And that promise was that if someone curses you lightly, 
I will curse them heavily. That was God's promise to the Jews. And if someone blesses you, I will bless them. I think that's at least one of the reasons our nation has been blessed, because early in our history, our first president, George Washington, went to a synagogue in Rhode Island, and uh, he wrote to them afterwards, while he's president, he was our head, the head of our nation. And he said, you'll be safe here. Okay, that is a blessing to the Jews. And I think that is why the Lord has blessed us, at least one of the reasons. But anyway, this is from Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, verses 11 through 13. This related, is related to us because Jesus made a promise, right? He said, if you believe in me, I will give you eternal life. Did he put any conditions on that? There's no conditions. It doesn't mean if you behave, I'll give you eternal life, right? He didn't say that. He said, if you believe in me, I'll give you eternal life. So 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, it is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. That is our justification, because we're told that when we believe in Jesus, we die with him. We're united with him in his death. We're reunited with him in his resurrection. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Okay, what is that? That means we listen to him after we're saved. We endure. He tells us to do things. It seems hard to us. We say, okay, because you say so, I will do it. If we endure in that way, we will reign with him in the millennial kingdom. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So we're saved. He says, I want you to do this. We say, nope, we're not, I'm not going to do it. He says, I want you to stop doing this. You say, nope, I'm going to do it. I like to do it. He will deny us. What does he deny us? He denies us that authority. He denies us our rewards at the Bama Seat Judgment. But listen to this one. If we are faithless, we believed at one time, now we don't believe anymore. We're faithless. No faith. He remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. You cannot lose your salvation, even if you don't believe anymore. Once you've been saved, you are eternally secure. You're going to heaven. You, that cannot be removed from you. You yourself cannot take yourself out of Jesus' hands. A similar thing is going on here with Esther and the Jews. Isn't that encouraging? You cannot screw it up, people. <laughs> that is so encouraging. No, we want to be enduring. We want to have rewards. We want to have authority, you know. But we know everyone who is honest with themselves knows that they have bad days where you sin, sometimes badly, you know. That does not threaten your salvation. Oh, yes. When, when you disobey, your fellowship is broken in the, that instant. Yes, and, and, and you hurt him. But he is the, the, the only true promise keeper. He will not break that promise. So anyway, section B, Queen Vashti is deposed. That was one of her bad days. But it, it just 
goes to show you what a kind of a husband her she had. <laughs> so that's verses 10 through 22, and I'll, I'll read that section. So on the seventh day, this is the seventh day of his drinking party, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Okay, he was tipsy. He commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. When the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him, then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, For it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew law and justice, and were close to him, Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom, according to law, that is, according to law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. So the king got in a spat with his wife, and he wanted to sick the police on her. <laughs> he wants to use the law against her. In the presence of the king and the princes, Mamukan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed. So there was no law. Let's make a law. <laughs> yes. Let's make a law to get the wife. And let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did, as Mamukan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. So, yeah, in verse 10, they had been drinking for a week. So it was a bender, really. When you're drunk as a skunk for a week. Yes. And the king was merry. You know, he was feeling no pain. So, um, you know, your best uh, decisions are not made when you're under the influence of alcohol. Yeah, a week, a week long. You know, you can just imagine he's disheveled, his eyes are bloodshot, and uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. So it, you know, it, that's not a wise thing to do. And actually, it says that in Proverbs, Proverbs thirty-one, 
verses 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed. You know, he was looking for a decree. And pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And clearly, you can see here that there is no emotional connection between the queen, the king and the queen. The, the king, you know, the, the queen snubs him, and he immediately wants to uh, call the law to get her. You know, so there's no emotional connection. And that is true of Esther also. Although, from the text, you know, it says, and we'll go over that this, it says that the queen loved Esther, and I thought, how can you love Esther? You just met her. <laughs> you know, but that's what the text says. He did love Esther. And so I don't think he has any emotional connection to Vashti, but, you know, he possibly did to Esther, although Esther was not a uh, a willing participant. She was a forced participant in this. But even with Esther, in chapter 4, verse 11, it says, this is Esther speaking, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for 30 days. Esther was afraid of her husband because she was afraid he would kill her if she approached him. So that makes the you think the emotional connection, if there was any, was faint <laughs> there, you know. Well, but there's also a connection. Yeah. Maybe look bad. Yeah. Really bad. It's it's business. <laughs> not personal. <laughs> business, not personal. Anyway, how are husbands and wives to relate to each other? Ephesians 5.25. This is the remedy for the sin nature in a marriage. It's the, this is the remedy for it. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, so sacrificial love, husband to the wife. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she would be holy and blameless. So that's about the church, Christ and the church. So husbands, now switching back to the marriage, husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Christ does the church. And then, this is to the wife, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Respect from the wife, sacrificial love from the husband. That is the remedy for the sin nature in marriage. And it is not universally carried out because we're fallen people and we can't do it. But when we do fall, which we do, we have to remember this and say, I'm sorry, and do what it says to each respective party. So a man should look at what it says about how Christ loved the church 
The wife should look about what it says about respect. And we should not look at what the other person is supposed to do. You look what you're supposed to do. That's how it works. Oh, yeah. So verse 10, there's a list of these guys. You know, Persian names are not much easier than Hebrew names. Nehuman, Bizza, Harbona, etc. These are seven eunuchs. So they had a system where castrated men handled the women. They had to be castrated, you know. I've read that maybe Daniel was castrated, although that I don't. That's not in the scripture. But um, you know, the the close servants of the king were frequently castrated, so they couldn't over rebel and have their own dynasty, you know, by procreating. So they were castrated. So um, you know, it's a very wonderful place. <laughs> yeah, that's the good old days, right? So, and they to, he told his eunuchs who were serving him to bring Queen Vashti before the king, and he wanted to show her off in front of his drunken friends, and you know, and this was a, this was a state event, you know, this was a state event, and he wanted to you know march her around like a model. Now, there's in in the Jewish history it says that he wanted to go naked. You don't see anything like that in the scripture. I, I don't think we can say that. But now, if you were a wife and your husband did this, was having a drunken party and wanted you to come in your best best clothes and kind of parade around, what would you think? Yeah, he's treating her like a hunk of meat. He says, "Look what I got." Yeah. So, um, you know, this is the character of the king of Persia. So um, here's the king. Yeah, he was the king, and there was this. He 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 was an yeah he was what's called an absolute monarch. So he had the power of life or death over his subjects, including his wife. Life or death, just like Henry the Eighth, right? <laughs> Henry the Eighth was an absolute monarch also, and he exercised that power. Yeah. So, um, so verse 13 and 14 through 15, um, verse 12, at the end, it says, the king became very angry, very angry, and his wrath burned within him. And you can understand that. Here's the king of the world power being snubbed by his wife in front of all these officials and all these generals you know, who are drunk and stuff, but you can see how he would be furious by that. So then he turns to his counselors. That's how the story is supposed to work out. Yeah. You know, this is an example of God's providence. You know, many times, you know, with our answers to prayer and things, it's, it's hardly ever is it miraculous. It's providential. When we pray, things happen, and it's just, it seems like a coincidence. You know, it's not a coincidence. It's just God moving things to make it work out according to our prayers. But it's not, we can't say, you know, it's miraculous. It's not like uh, the splitting of the Red Sea and stuff like that. Those things are moderately rare in our day. And actually, for most of human history, miraculous things like that 
are relatively rare. Usually it's providence. It's the Lord moving things around, occurring the prayers of his people. It's when usually when God is starting something new that you'll have a blast of miracles. You know, when he took the Jews out of Egypt and he was starting the dispensation of law, zillions of miracles. When Jesus came to announce he was the Messiah, zillions of miracles. And at the start of the church, zillions of miracles. But most of the time, those are relatively rare. So anyway, the reasoning of the counselors is good. He said, all the women will rebel against their husbands in the whole country <laughs> if Vashti gets away with this. All of the women will rebel. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and here we see that, you know, the the Persians had a, a deal where once they made a law, it could not be repealed. They, their, their laws were permanent. No, I mean, they, they, were, they, work, they work around it by writing uh, alternative laws that counteract the other one, but they don't repeal the first one. And that's in verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed. It can't be repealed. Yeah, the way, the way it's worked around is they don't repeal that law. They write a law that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. So they're legally allowed to defend themselves. And the Lord caused them to win. So what, what we're seeing working working out here is Genesis 3.16 between Ahasuerus and Vashti. Although I think well, Vashti was... It says, To the woman he said, I'll greatly multiply your pain and childbirth and pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. A woman has a desire to control her husband. Vashti says, you can't tell me that. I will not do that. And uh, the husband's sinful response is to overcome his wife and obliterate her. That's power a sinful response. It is a power struggle. Every marriage is a power struggle for control. And that is why Ephesians 5, what I read to you, is so important in a marriage. Because that diffuses that power struggle that the sin nature naturally sets up. So, and in this case, it turned into a national issue because it was between the king and the queen. So, um, verses 20 to 22, the king's edict, which he will make is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is that all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. And so the the uh, language, you know, the official language is Aramaic, but he wasn't content to send it in Aramaic. He sent it in every language of the province. He wanted to make sure everybody heard this. Everybody understood it. It wasn't just in the official language. He sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province, according to its script, and to every people according to their language. He had it translated in all the language of the empire, that this is how it would be, because he was so incensed about this. 
So this is, the, see, the Lord is setting this up because the Lord has foreknowledge and he knows what's coming. And so he is arranging an absence of a queen by using the sinfulness of the king and queen. Anything more about that? It's kind of an ugly story, really, you know. So section C, Xerxes searches for a new queen. Chapter 2, 1 through 11. Somebody want to read that section? After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known to her Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. So the king's anger subsided. You know, after time, your anger goes away, along with, the, along with your queen. And the counselors gave another suggestion. Okay, so the counselors, I'm sure, were, they did not want Vashti to come back. Why? Because they suggested she be booted. <laughs> yeah, there's a tradition. Of course, if she was dead, then that would make sense. But even if she wasn't dead, the counselors would not want her back because then she would act against them. So they suggested uh, get a new queen, a virgin, young, pretty virgin, and uh, recruit them from the entire empire. So uh, the quarterly said that, and it's, I think it's true. It says the king seemed to be led by rather than lead his counselors. His counselors led him by the nose. So he said to round up beautiful virgins around the country and put them in a harem. So that is what they did. Didn't say ask for volunteers. 
So verse, you know, if you were a young lady and that happened to, me, to you, how would you like that? So verses 5 and 6 talks about, verse 5 talks about Mordecai. Mordecai is from the uh, either Persian or Babylonian god. I think it's Babylonian god Marduk. And um, it says that he was in verse 6, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled. So I believe that is referring back to the son of Kish, a Benjamite, because that was about 110 years before. And Mordecai would have been a pretty old guy. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think it's reasonable to say that. And, and Jeconiah, when he was taken, was the second wave from Jerusalem. He was the son of Jehoiakim, and he was the one that Jeremiah pronounced a curse upon, that the Messiah would not come through his line, which is why we have two different genealogies in Matthew and Luke. So the Lord got around that with Jesus. But um, so that was Mordecai. And then it talks about Esther, and her Esther was her Persian name, which means star, or Ishtar. Hadassah was her Jewish name, and I, I, I'm not sure what that means. I, I learned what it means, but I forgot. Myrtle, thank you. Yes, Myrtle. And she was an orphan who Mordecai had taken under his wing when her parents died. Um, so then eight verses 8 and 9 came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered into the citadel, into the custody of Haggai. Esther was taken in and uh, into the custody of Haggai. You know, it sounds like a jailer. And verse 9 says, Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. And that was the Lord, I'm sure. The exact same thing happened to Joseph when he was taken by force into Egypt, right? Joseph didn't decide he was going to Egypt. <laughs> yeah, Daniel, you know, Daniel and Esther are, provide contrasting responses to this. Daniel was taken at about the age of 15. He came in the first wave of the uh, captivity and um, very young boy. And he was being he was he was royal, he was I don't know whose son he was, but he was in the royal line, and uh, they were training him to be counselors, and they were brainwashing him in Babylon, and he he went to his jailer, and said, you know, I'd rather not eat the king's food. And the Lord gave him favor with that guy, and he said, test us. Now Esther did nothing like that. Esther just went along. So, um, Daniel. Understood. Yeah. So, I mean, Daniel was demonstrating faith. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Joseph. This is from Genesis 39.2. And this was when Joseph was placed in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, uh, Potiphar. Says the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. 
So in verse 10, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her for more, not that she should not make them known. So we haven't heard it yet, but it sounds like there was an underlying thread of anti-Semitism in the country. And so Mordecai said, for your safety, don't tell them you're a Jew. Okay, so verse 12 through 18, let me read that real quick. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem. They had two harems, the virgins, the non-virgins. To the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now in the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king. She did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So this is four years after the party. Four years later, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head personally and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. So... She got one year of beauty treatments, six months oil of myrrh, six months of perfumes and cosmetics. The subject lady was allowed to take anything she wanted for her night with the king. Notice she went in the evening. She came out in the morning. The night. She interacted with the king during the night. When she went to the second harem, she would live there forever. The king had been with her. No one else could have her. She couldn't be married to any other man. She had to stay there the rest of her life. Unless the king called her back by name. How many do you think he did that to? Not very many. So, you know, it was sex slavery. Just awful. <laughs> so anyway, Esther asked for nothing. But she asked Haggai to advise her and she found favor. God's grace was upon her. And then it says the king loved Esther. And I did look that up. That is the Hebrew word for love. And he personally crowned her himself. Queen. That, again, is God's grace. That is God's grace. So, um, and the Lord is setting things up for Haman to arrive on the scene. You know, to be, yeah, protected. So anyway... It's a wonderful testimony to God's faithfulness here, even when we are unfaithful. So, Lord, we thank you for the story. We I feel bad for Esther, <laughs> but I thank you that uh, 
you know, you used her to save Israel, as you will always do. Um, and as you will ultimately do, Jesus will come and save them personally and start the kingdom. So we look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen.